We're going to be talking about David today. Last week, I opened up our David series talking about David's calling, and it was truly an important message for us to understand what it looks like to live a life following Christ. And that is the fact that God looks at our character to determine our future. And the reality is many of us are focused on our future. Some of us are more focused on our present. But if you are not concerned with your character, then God is not going to be able to work within your life in the way that you hope that he would. So one of the things that we're trying to do through this series of David, which is going to span through most, if not all, of the summer, is going to be trying to figure out how could a flawed man like David be named a man after God's own heart. In fact, there is no other king that is said to have followed and loved him so much than David. And yet David was regularly messing up. And so what we're trying to figure out throughout this series is how are we supposed to understand a man after God's own heart with so many failings and failures within his life. And so I hope that you'll stick around with us. Today we're going to see what one of those are in a story that you're familiar with. We're going to be kind of running through this story. But I want to make a connection because there's so much about David we miss when we only focus on the stories of his calling on David and Goliath and then David and Bathsheba. For most people, those are the only three stories that they know about David, and we already have tackled one of them last week. Today, we're going to tackle David and Goliath. Uh, That only leaves one more for the rest of the summer that you may be familiar with. But there's actually a connecting piece between Saul and David from his anointing as king until the experience of him going out to fight Goliath. And so I'm not going to go through all of this, but what we read following his anointing is that there becomes a point, if you'll remember, Saul is having his kingship ripped from him because he has not obeyed God. And so he has gone out to anoint David. And at some point, it is said that a spirit from the Lord has come to torment Saul. So whether that be nightmares or just anxiety or fear, we know that he struggled with all of those things, whatever it was, Saul was being tormented regularly, and so he asked all those around, I need someone who is a good musician that can come, kind of put me at peace, and kind of settle my nerves whenever I feel like I'm being tormented. And so when he asked around, this is what was said to him in 1 Samuel 16, 18. It says, one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the the (laughs) Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. That is what is said of David. And so he invites David to come and to be a musician in his court. Now, what's interesting that we see here, as well as the rest of David's life, is how he is described as a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, the Lord's with him, and also skillful in playing. That is a broad range of skills that David carries. And so once he comes into his service, it says this in verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So as we enter the story of David and Goliath, you may be under the impression that this is really David's introduction to Saul, and it's not. David has had an ongoing relationship with Saul, and at this point, you know, David is actually in Saul's service and becomes his armor bearer. He's always calling on him as soon as he feels like he's struggling or whatever it means for him to be tormented. And then sometime later, David is going to leave. He's going to go back home, and then we're going to enter into the story of David and Goliath. So there's a big period of time here. We really don't know what happens or, or why David left, but that's when we enter into our story today. What I want to talk to you today is about confidence. Because what I see and what I believe about many people is one of their greatest struggles is, the, is in the area of confidence. It's the belief that they are capable. 
It's believing that you are able. Confidence is that self-satisfying idea that I can do this. I can make this happen. I am okay throughout this. And, and what I see constantly in the lives of people and many in the lives of believers and certainly in many of our younger generations is a complete lack of confidence. Now, let me contrast that with saying you can be overconfident. And the, my guess is all of you know someone who is overconfident. They're not a whole lot of fun to be around. I mean, they just so exude confidence, and it is, it is so much that you, don't even, you can't even stand to be with them. But that is really the exception to the rule. What I think most people struggle with is a lack of confidence. And what we find whenever you are not confident in your life is that you will do anything to gain it. A person that doesn't feel value for themselves, who doesn't feel like they are capable of living their life, who doesn't feel like they can get through will do just about anything to gain that confidence. One of the things that we see within our society is this mass mob mentality. And so many people who lack confidence just kind of fall into whatever the most people think and believe and say. Because if that's what most people think, believe, and say, then if I think, believe, and say that, I can be confident that I fit in with the vast majority of people. And we not only see that outside of the church, we see that inside the church. And the mob mentality is a mentality that completely disconnects you from trying to seek wisdom and discernment from God and gives your complete confidence into the hands of the people that are around you. You will do anything to find confidence. It's one of the reasons that people get addicted to different substances. It's because they don't feel confident to make it in life on their own. They need to have something else to help them. And so that's the reason a number of teenagers begin smoking. They smoke because it makes them feel confident and they get a little high from the nicotine and so they keep doing it if their friends around them do it. However, if your friends don't smoke, you're not likely to smoke either because for your circle of friends, that is not where you find confidence. One of the reasons that people start taking drugs is because they feel like they can't make it within life and so they need something to help them get through life, just escape for a little while and so then they start taking drugs and then drugs take over their life. We find it in entertainment. We find it in just watching videos on YouTube and getting stuck on social media. Whatever I can escape to avoid the reality that I do not feel confident in living this life, I will do. And what we're going to find within David is that he gives us a recipe for confidence in times of great fear. Because at the end of the day, one of the reasons that we're not confident is that we fear we are not enough. And so how do we find that within our lives? So sometime later, after this time in Saul's service, we enter into 1 Samuel 17. And we're not going to go through this entire chapter. And you know much of the story, though I am going to read a lot of it because there's a few things I want to pull out of it. But I want us to focus around this idea of where is your confidence through this story. Not so much where is your courage. We often talk about courage in the story of David and Goliath. I'm not asking you to have courage. Courage comes with confidence. But where is your confidence? 1 Samuel 17, 1 is where we pick up this story. And this kind of sets the scene for what's happening. It's an unusual scene for warfare for the nation of Israel. It's a common enemy, the Philistines, that they are constantly battling with. But this is where we find this part of the story sometime after David's service to Saul as his armor bearer and as his lyre player. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdom. And Saul the man and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew a line in the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, which is about nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, that could be with his armor, could be with his helmet. It was normal for a Philistine helmet to have big feathers coming out. They didn't really wear helmets. They wore headdresses, though, with big feathers coming out of it. It's possible he had that on his helmet. But anyways, a big guy, nine feet, nine inches tall, as they looked at him. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels, which is about 126 pounds. 
So you can imagine trying to carry around 126 pounds. This was a stout guy, no matter how tall he was. And that, those, uh, the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. You know what a weaver's beam is? That's a beam that they would use that would be tied on to the top of this framework with some rope. And that beam would just slide back and forth. And it would bring the thread through as it was woven. It was a massive piece to build big rugs and big pieces of, of garments. The shaft of his spear was a weaver, like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is about 15 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid." One of the things that we're going to find as we go through this story is that there is a very real link between our fears and those things in which we find confidence. In fact, your greatest fears will probably determine where your greatest lack of confidence is. If you sat here for a moment and you just think about what are your greatest fears, you may struggle with that. But if I ask you, what are you least confident in? Then you very well may be able to answer that question. For a lot of people, their confidence is found in in different places. One of the things that you do whenever you're young is you have great confidence in your appearance. I want to look healthy. I want to be healthy. I want to wear the right clothes. I want to look cool. I want to look like I fit in, which is kind of amazing how much we want to fit in that we will all almost look alike in the way that we dress. We'll shop at the same places, wear the same clothes because it makes us feel like we're, we're going to fit in. Our appearance is a, a place that even as you get older, until you accept the fact that things just don't work the way they used to as you get older, appearance is a big part of your confidence. It's one of the reasons people go to the gym so much is because they want to feel confident. Watch it. I'm treading. Financial security is another one. Our confidence is in our ability to take care of ourselves. And ultimately, you will find this is one of the greatest hindrances you will have in your faith with God is the belief that I can take care of myself financially. Financial security is something that people will go after. I have found in business it is one of the things that causes people to give up their faith so quickly is the search for the dollar that makes them feel content. And as I talk with Christian business people, it is so evident when the thing they worship is not God, but it is the next dollar. Because financial security is something that so many of us, especially as you do get older, that you are going to struggle with for your confidence. As long as I can pay all my bills, I can do anything. As long as I don't have to worry about being on the street, I can do anything. As long as everything's covered, I can do anything. To that end, another area that we're often building our confidence in is in our careers and our influence. Is this worthwhile? Do people want to be me? Do they look at me and think I'm better than them because my job is better than theirs? Can I look at my salary and let people know that look how much more money I make than you? And if they don't know that right off the bat, then I can at least show them by how I dress and what I wear and where I live. I can show them how successful I am. Oftentimes, those that know Christ the most demonstrate where their confidence is the least, except in their relationship with Christ. One of the things I I learned from my dad, who was a very successful physician in Knoxville, is that we never, I've told you this before, my sister and I, we never had a name brand piece of clothes in our lives 
I don't know if any of you experienced that. When all your friends have all the right logos, but you do not, it's not very fun. The reality is mom and dad could have gotten us anything they wanted at any time. As I grew older and as I learned how dad lived his life and how dad ran his business, I found that much of what he earned was given away to others. There'd be people in need that would come in for work and he would take some fruit for payment. He would trade all kinds of different things because people couldn't pay their bills. And one of the things my dad taught me that I never forgot was, unlike just about any other physician in town at the time, dad never used a collection agency. His confidence was not in his ability to get as much as possible. And interestingly enough, by not using a collection agency, dad had one of the highest collection percentages of any physician in town. People paid their bills. They saw in my dad a confidence. They saw in him something that was going to go beyond just the basics of running a business. Many of you know him and You don't know these things about him because you don't know him in that arena. But one of the things that I noticed was we never lived in a house befitting of his salary. We never drove cars befitting of his salary. We never wore clothes befitting of his salary because my dad knew what we're going to find in David, that there are many people who live like the Israelites that fear much in life. And then there are those who are confident and things beyond this life. And my dad and my mom did not want our confidence to be in this life. And so that was a lesson that I learned from him, and it's a lesson that we learned from David. There are so many things we try to put our confidence in. We try to put our confidence in our relationships with others. We try to put our confidence in our ability to make it ourselves. We try to put our confidence in everything but God because we can see everything else but God. And in this particular battle with two armies on opposite sides, there was great fear on one because of one soldier on the other. The belief that they couldn't handle Goliath, the belief that they were going to fall, and this was an unusual situation. Although the Philistines may have done this, if you had a Goliath in your ranks, you would jump at this opportunity to have a representative to fight for your army because there's maybe no, not many people like Goliath, but the Israelites, this is not something that they commonly did. This is not the way they fought battle, and they were used to fighting battles. The average Israeli was not very large, still isn't to this day. So to look up at a nine-foot-nine-inch giant carrying all of this army that they themselves would not have carried, although Saul had armor, the average soldier just fought in gar- and, and just clothes, just cloth clothes. And so fear was great. You are not asked to be on a mountain looking over at another to go down and fight a nine foot nine inch giant. But my guess is that everyone in this room is on a mountain somewhere facing an enemy that they fear on the other side. What is the enemy that you fear? Let's continue in our story. The next few verses, David is going to be conscripted by his father to go out and see his three brothers that are at the battlefield. His three other brothers go out to fight. If you'll remember, there are eight brothers all together, and David and the rest of the brothers stay back. But David is the one who is supposed to go and check on them. And so it says that David goes out early in the morning and arrives early in the morning with food for his brothers and also for their commander. We pick up in verse 19, it said, Now Saul and they and all the men, they being his brothers, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. 
All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. I want you to listen to what David, how David responds. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? One of the things that you're going to find is that whenever your confidence is in yourself, you will constantly be in doubt. We, by very nature, doubt ourselves. In fact, often the people that demonstrate the most self-assurance are usually, when you get right down to it, the most insecure of everyone. They show this fake self-assurance to try to mask the great insecurity that they feel. There's not a whole lot of masked insecurity in this situation because they were just afraid. And David looked out and he recognized this battle is not between an Israeli soldier and a Philistine soldier. This battle is between the enemies of God and God himself. You'll remember in the Old Testament, God demonstrated his presence through this nation. He didn't demonstrate his presence through showing up himself and doing things in some kind of spiritual form. Instead, he worked through this nation. And so what David saw when he walked up was at the the heart of the matter, this is an issue about God's worship and the people of Israel. And what you will find if you are a follower of Jesus is every issue of confidence in your life is about your relationship with God. Every issue with confidence is about your relationship with God. You will be tempted to fill that void with the first thing that comes along that makes you feel confident. But for David, it had to do with their worship. Verse 27, the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, didn't really appreciate David's words. He heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. In other words, David was calling them out because of their lack of faith in God. And his big brother didn't like it. And as he begins to try to silence his brother, David is not having it. Faith changes the way you see your challenges. Faith changes the way you see your challenges. At some point in your life, you are going to have to come to the place where you see the world differently than you did before you knew Christ. In everything that you do, you have to see it differently. When I became a Christian, I was of the mindset Before I became a Christian, I was of the mindset that if my parents didn't catch me, I didn't do anything wrong. Anyone else have that mindset? Yeah. Entire front row, maybe. It was up to them. It was incumbent upon them to catch me if I was going to admit I had done something wrong. And the truth is, is I got caught a lot. And mom and dad had a big network of spies. I mean, friends. That told on me. I remember one time in particular I was driving maybe a little over the speed limit. Maybe a lot. My mom got a phone call from a friend who happened to be at the same red light as me. I saw Mark. Are you kidding me? But when I became a Christian, I began to believe that God wanted a higher standard than me waiting to get caught. And so whenever I began to act in ways that were not good that were not healthy, that I knew were disobeying my parents, I began to feel conviction. 
and that I needed to fess up. And I remember the very first time this happened. It was, such, it was such a weird feeling because when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you and the Holy Spirit is moving within you in ways you can't possibly understand. And for me in that moment, it was a moment I didn't fully understand. I just knew I, I was really gripped here. I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. But I felt like I was supposed to go tell my parents and every time I got in trouble before, it was bad, and I knew it was going to be bad because they had told me not to do whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was, but I gathered my confidence. I knew it was the right thing to do, and I went and I told my parents. And an amazing thing happened. Nothing. My parents were so impressed that I was finally taking responsibility for myself that the things I feared would happen didn't happen. The reason that changed in me was not because of fear. It was not because I figured I could get away with something more. It was because the Holy Spirit said, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to live as Jesus would want you to live. And that means if you do something wrong, you need to admit it and ask forgiveness. And so in that moment, I did. Throughout my life, my faith has changed the way I have seen our challenges Remember when we started talking about having kids, we had a similar conversation that probably most people have in the room. Do we have the time? And more importantly, can we afford to have kids? And there was great fear on the ability to, to do that. I was a student at the time. Deidre was, was a teacher and didn't make a whole lot of money. I worked part, another part-time job doing landscaping. And so we were not wealthy at all, but we wanted to have kids. We believed we were supposed to have kids. And so when we looked at our challenge, it was very easy. And many young parents today look at the financial challenges of parenthood and say, we simply can't afford it. But that was a challenge that when you look at faith, you no longer allow that fear to keep you from pushing forward. Deciding whether to go into ministry or whether to go into a job that I can make a living. It was a tough challenge because I knew I could make money out in the world. Going into ministry, I didn't know that we could make it. It was a challenge. And it's very easy today to look at where you're going to spend your time and your career based on how much money am I going to make. And that is a very real consideration. There are some very fun jobs out there, but you're going to have to live on the street in order to live off of them. And so, If you're looking for a job and you're deciding on a career, it is important to determine, is this a career that can sustain a family? But at the same time, there are times that God will call you into a career in which you're going to have to ask yourself, do I have faith that God is moving me into this? Or am I going to be afraid of what could possibly happen? When it came to sending our kids away to camp, and some of you are sending your kids away to camp in the next couple of weeks, and whether you're going to centrifuge or journey camp, they're great opportunities, but we know that they are costly. We know that you've got to dig deep, and if you've got several kids that are going, you've got to really dig deep to go, and so we know that there are times that you can say, we just can't afford it, but we have found that they are such great experiences of growth for our, our youth and for our leaders and for their time together that it is a worthwhile thing to do. And when we first started talking about sending them to camps, we were like, gosh, we can't afford to do that. We had faith that this is what God wanted to happen. And so we found a way to see it differently. As your kids get older and you start thinking about college and weddings and retirement, it's easy in those moments to be afraid, to begin to hoard, to hold things in and to let generosity go by the wayside. It's easy to do that out of fear. But faith changes the way you see your challenges. Are you going to be content in your career is something I hear often. Faith changes the way you see your challenges. If you're in school, am I going to have good enough grades? Am I going to be able to stand up to bullies? Am I going to have enough friends? Faith changes the way you see your challenges because you realize that the God of the universe who created everything is here with you. And if he is here with you, what 
terrible thing could happen that he can't get you through. For David, David was preoccupied with honoring God in everything. And guys, I'm looking at the notes. I think that's last week's notes you guys have, if you're wondering why I'm nowhere near where you guys are. It should be David too up there. Although that was a good sermon. I don't mind doing it again. It was a good one. But David was preoccupied with honoring God in everything. And what we know when we begin to accept God's word in faith is that everything in this world is spiritual. Rob Bell coined that term, and Rob Bell's got some crazy beliefs. But he was right about this. Everything is spiritual. The seats you sit in are spiritual, made by the very raw materials that God created himself. If we could open our eyes and see how God was working, we would see this place filled with God's presence. We would see his angels surrounding us, and we would see when we worship a chorus with us. But instead, if you're like me, sometimes I sit here and I think it's a little warm in here today because we forgot to turn the air on. But if we could open our eyes and see with David, David was preoccupied with honoring God in everything. And so I ask you, is your confidence in yourself and your ability to control your life and to present a life that is admirable to others? Or is your confidence in something that will not disappoint? When it comes to fears, I have found within my own life that when you fear displeasing God, the rest of your fears diminish. This is biblical. This is what we're instructed, how we're instructed to live. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a feel-good verse. You want to get that tattooed somewhere. Isaiah 8, 12 says, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Think about that. When we fear the Lord, then he becomes a sanctuary for us. Now, what he's not saying is, if you will be afraid of God, instead, if you will fear not being with God, then he will be a sanctuary when you are with him. And all of the other things that we're trying to get out of this life just don't matter when it comes to God because God is sustaining us. He's filling us and he is wholeheartedly all and enough for us. There is strength and godly power in a life built around bold faith. Do you have within your life a bold faith in which you feel powerful? I don't mean powerful that when you go into work, you're going to blow everybody away, but I mean you are not going to be swayed or moved because your confidence is in the Lord and not in someone else. For the Israelite army, their confidence was in their army, their generals, their fighting ability. And when a nine foot nine inch giant comes up, their fear is we cannot stand against him. Even though God has given them battle after battle after battle. Once we really give up our need for confidence in ourselves, there is great peace when our confidence is in our omnipotent, all-powerful God. That is where confidence is meant to be had. We pick up the story again, 1 Samuel 17, 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, because no one else was volunteering to go out and fight him. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Have you ever felt impressed by God to do something bigger than you are and someone else tell you you're not big enough? Ever? I'm telling you, if you've not experienced that, you're not trying hard enough. Because what God's going to do in your life if you are trusting him and following him is he is going to call you into something bigger than yourself. And once he does that, there will be somebody sitting around waiting to tell you, you are not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not 
with the right breeding. You don't have the right education. You don't have the right skills. You don't talk good enough. It was interesting, many of the disciples, when they went out, their objection to Jesus' calling was, but I am, I am not good with words. And he said, I'm not worried about that. I will give you the words. There's always going to be somebody that says, you can't do it. Just like Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And the reality is that what Saul was seeing was just from his own eyes and not through his faith. You need to remember that at this point, Saul has abandoned following God. He no longer sees through the eyes of faith. He sees through his own eyes and his own abilities. Saul's getting older. Saul's not as strong and capable as he once was. And so he's becoming more fearful. But David, verse 34, said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lamb or a bear and took took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now, it would be very easy for David's confidence to be in his prowess in the ability to kill something. But I want you to notice where he places his confidence and who he gives the glory for the things that he has done. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God, seeing through his eyes of faith. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. See, for David, it was not about what he could do on his own. He recognized that everything he has done at this point, that God has been the one who has done it through him. This is a major departure from the way that you are told to live your life in the world today, which is be confident in yourself. David never had confidence in himself. Instead, he said, I have only done these things because of what God has done through me. Can you say confidently that there has been anything in your life? I can point to no other answer than the fact that God has done this through me. If you have not, then that is a a sad life to live. Because God wants to do these things through you too. Not necessarily fight a, a bear or a lion. Because if you go to the park and you go looking for a bear and you're going to prove God's going to work through you, please don't ask me to come do your funeral. That is not the point. What is the thing that is standing between you and God that he is calling you out to do something bigger than yourself because he wants to do something through you? God wants to do something through you. Not only does faith change the the way we see our challenges, Faith changes the way we meet our challenges. And we begin to believe things like Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I personally cannot do all things. I don't know about you. I have come up with many things I cannot do. I can pray about them and I can practice them and I can do my very best at doing them. But there are many things that I cannot do. That is not what Paul is saying in his letter to the Philippians. What he is saying is in everything that God has called you to, he will empower you and he will strengthen you to do those things. So there are many things I cannot do, but there are many things I could not do until he called me and strengthened me to do them. And that is a promise that he gives to all believers. Because faith, when we have that, is the assurance that God is at work. It's the assurance that God is at work. Picking up the story again, says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. Now Saul was a big guy. David's still growing. He's still a young guy. David, I mean, Saul, Saul was a big dude. Not as big as, as Goliath, but he was a big guy. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. 
Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five small stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So as you know the rest of this story, David will go and he will approach Goliath. Goliath is going to mock him, and David is going to claim that I am fighting for the Lord, and he is my strength. And as he charges Goliath, he slings his stones. Goliath falls. He picks up Goliath's sword because he doesn't have a sword with him. And he cuts his head off and ends the war with the Philistines, or at least the battle with the Philistines in this moment. And as this happens, the Philistines begin to run. And they are pursued and the battle is over. You can imagine David is pretty popular at this point. Everyone who's at the battle is now praising him, his brothers. I, I really would like to, to see. There are certain things that are left out in Scripture I would like to see. One of them I would like to see what the brothers, especially Eliab, said to David after all of this happened. Because they just sat there on the sidelines. But David decided to do something because his faith changed the way he saw his challenges. When we place our confidence and trust in God instead of ourselves, God goes before us. This is honestly what I seek. I won't say I, it always happens. This is what I seek in my own life and what I hope for my children's lives is that they will place their confidence and trust in God instead of themselves because I believe God goes before me and goes before them and will go before you when you do that. Amazing thing happens when we go under our own power. God pulls back his presence and we end up dealing with it on our own. But when we put our confidence in him, he goes before us. That's why... Scripture says that pride goes before a fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. Because God lets us fall on our face. Because God doesn't want us to try to do it on our own. He wants to do these things through them. So let me ask you, where is your confidence? Is it in your intellect, your appearance, your finances, your influence, your ability to get people to see you the way you want them to? How is it that you see God? Where is your confidence? Whatever it is, I know that the object of your confidence is going to determine how you face your fears. I don't know what your fears are. If your fears are that you're going to live a life of insignificance, if your fear is that you're not going to make it through this life, that somehow you're not going to regain a relationship that you've lost, that you're never going to reach the lifestyle that you always wanted. I don't know what it is, but the object of your confidence will determine how you face your fears. If you are the object of your confidence and you are going to have to face your fears only solely through what you have inside of you, you will easily become overwhelmed and will give up and become discouraged and you will be depressed and and despair. If that is where your confidence is, because you are a limited person and no one knows how limited you are as well as you do. No one knows how limited we are more than ourselves. The object of your confidence also will determine how you live your life. See, when you trust in God for everything, you will act in the ways that Jesus wanted us to act. As I shared when I became a Christian, I knew I needed to act in the way that Jesus would act. And And it was not easy at first, but then it became easy. Because I realized that he knew what he was talking about. Can I just tell you, this is what I want to close with. Can I just tell you that there is a great need for godly confidence today? There's a great need. It is so lacking I see very little godly confidence in the world. I I see some of it in in many of you in this room. Some of you, your confidence is, it is inspiring because it is not in yourselves. It is not in your abilities. It is not in what you've done, but it is in God. And you just ooze that. We live in a, a world now that faith is ridiculed and we need godly confidence. 
We live in a world that persecution is growing, and many people are leaving and turning away from Christ, and we need godly confidence in Him. What we find in families are that men are leading less and less. If you want to watch just about any show, it will diminish men to the point that you are worthless. We need men with godly confidence to lead when it's not popular, to serve when no one wants to serve, to give when everyone else is hoarding. We need women with godly confidence. We need women that walk alongside with us, with men, and that they are showing us what it means to have compassion and love and grace. You know, it's a joke within the church that men are absent and women are gossips. I don't find that here. It happens everywhere, but I don't find that very much here. We do see men leading. And if there is gossip going on, I'm not aware of it. We need women with godly confidence that you're not listening to what the world tells you what it means to be a woman. You're looking at what God says. Because the world has a lot to say about that right now. And quite honestly, what the world says how to be a woman today is to emulate the very worst characteristics of men. Be aggressive. To be totalitarian. To lord over. To say you're better than. Those are the very worst characteristics of men. Those are the things that godly men work an entire lifetime to banish from their arsenal of tools and instead become servant leaders. Biblical principles are ridiculed. We need godly confidence. A friend of mine, I went to high school. I keep up with him, and we keep up through Facebook, and he posted something. I don't know if he's a believer or not, to be honest. I know many of his friends are not. But he posted about a situation that happened. And then a girl at a Christian school got pregnant. She was president of the student government. And because she, she was found to be pregnant, she was suspended for two days from school. She was no longer allowed to be class president. And she was barred from attending her own graduation. She couldn't walk. She graduated, but she couldn't walk. And so he just asked, what is everyone's feeling on this? Let me just read you some of the responses. One friend said, who's to say which morals are right and wrong? What if she and her family practice and follow a religion that makes it okay to bear children at 15 or whatever? Society is messed up. That's not what she said, but society is messed up, I tell you. Seriously? What if they value 15-year-olds getting pregnant? Seriously? Another friend said, who's to... I'm sorry, that's what I just read. My friend responded to that. Well, it's a Christian school. This is how that same person responded. Oh, my goodness. Those are the most judgmental because not wanting your 15-year-old to get pregnant is judgmental. That's the worldly confidence that is being bartered today. Another friend goes on, this is a Puritan ethic. To think that a teenager will not be sexually active is archaic. If this is in the student handbook, then that is just how it is. We'd be better focused on teaching human sexuality and birth control. That is not godly confidence. That is giving up into a world that does not even analyze how destructive our habits have become. A child having sex outside of marriage is more acceptable than a Christian school who says, don't have sex. Because their confidence is in this mass mentality that the world is now sharing. Another friend said, I don't agree with this at all. But if it's a private school, they can be as backwards as they want because not wanting your 15-year-old to get pregnant is backwards. I certainly didn't agree with my kid learning that the Bible was based on fact in her private school or that the only reliable birth control was saving herself for marriage. 
but it was a parochial school, and it was my choice to send her there. We had an issue here in Memphis with a private religious school not allowing a gay student to take a same-sex date to prom. I don't agree with that policy either. What I find is that our confidence today is what the masses say, and we have failed to stop and ask ourselves, what is healthy? What is right? What is good? What is the good thing to do? And when we look and we know that our children are attending schools where the basic belief now is that sex is the accepted way to live life and that you shouldn't wait till you get married. And we no longer stop and we say, but is that good? Is that right? It amazes me that in prom season, the number of parents that will rent a house for their children to go to prom, they will stock it with alcohol and let them stay unsupervised for days. You think, Mark, you're being extreme. I am not being extreme. This is the absolute norm in high schools today. And then we ask ourselves, how do these, why, why do these girls end up in these situations where they get raped by boys? Hello? And what we are criticized for is believing that you should not do those things. If your confidence is in anything other than God, you will be swayed to believe what the masses believe. And we have got to stand up and say, this is not the way of Christ. Where is your confidence? See, there's so many benefits. The benefits of confidence in God allows us to get through this life and not fearing repercussions, not fearing that someone will disagree with us, not fearing that maybe people won't like me. It's amazing to me how many of us struggle with people. We want people to like us. Christ gave his life for you. And so it should change the way we live. One of the reasons that we can look at David, you know, David, David was not faithful to his wife. What we're going to find is that actually because of this scenario with David and Goliath, what we're going to find is David gets a number of things at this point. He's going, his family is now going to be tax-free. They're not going to pay taxes because he's done this. He also gets what is huge, huge, huge. He gets to marry one of Saul's daughters. Now, what should happen in culture is that he marries the oldest daughter. And for whatever reason, we don't know, his oldest daughter gets promised to somebody else after the fact. And so it leaves him with the next daughter. And the next daughter was Michael. And, and Michael ends up marrying David. And so David now is born in, or not born into, but he is now a part of the royal family. Saul does not yet realize how true that already is. But David is now going to be a part of Saul's family. So a lot of things are going to happen for David, and it's going to change his story. Down the road, what you're going to find with David is that Michael begins, at first she loves him, and then she turns and begins to hate him. And she wants to have nothing to do with him. It's one of the reasons that he then goes and he sees Bathsheba and says, Oh, well, she's not bad looking. And he goes and makes a terrible decision. Now, when we look at David and we go, David... Look what you did with Bathsheba. Look what you did with her husband. And her husband had fought with David for years as one of his mighty men. We look at that and we say, how can David be a man after God's own heart? Look at his failures. We're going to find that he was a terrible leader at times. And in fact, one of the stories we're going to look at, the, and all of his men, when he's at this time of running from Saul, because Saul eventually figures out, People like David more than me. And so he wants to kill David. And eventually he runs and all of his men get mad at him and say, we need to abandon David because he's a bad leader. Why is David a man after God's own heart? And I believe what we see in this story is that he is a man after God's own heart because his confidence is in the Lord. What we saw last week and what we're going to see starting with our next installment of David is going to be that he's constantly returning back to him. If you're a person who fails and you have somehow believed 
that failure means God no longer loves you or can use you. I don't care what it means. When you turn back to God, He is gracious and merciful to forgive. And if Scripture says we all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, then there's not a one of you that can escape the reality that you're going to be in David's shoes. You may not commit David's sins, but you will be in David's shoes. Where is your confidence? For David, his confidence was in the Lord. And so whenever he fell, he had to go back to his confidence, and he repented, and he was restored. As we go back in these next few stories of David, we're going to be contrasting much of what we find in 1 Samuel and and, uh, a little bit in Chronicles and Kings, but a lot in Samuel. What we're going to find is that you have to read it with Psalms because it is with Psalms that you find what's going on in David's heart. What you read in 1 Samuel is what goes on with just the, the basics of his life and his kingship, but it is in Psalms that we find out what's going on in his heart. So I hope that you'll stick with us. I know this is a long one today. I'm actually cutting out a whole bunch more stuff I had, so I'm going to take it easy on you. But I hope that you will find that when we are confident in God, it changes everything and he works powerfully through us. So let me leave you with this question. Where do you place your confidence Is it in the Lord? Have you been trying to fake it all this time? You can fake it. In fact, a lot of people fake it. Sometimes when you're starting a new job, you have to fake it because you know you don't know what you're doing just to get by. But at your core is your confidence in the Lord. I pray that it is. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you that our confidence can be in you and not in ourselves. I thank you that even when we fail, that you're there to pick us up. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in a time that the world is just going mad. When we embrace every type of sin and unhealthy behavior, just because we believe you should have the freedom to do whatever you want. Father, I pray that you would return us back into your, to your presence and that our confidence would be in you, that we would walk in your steps and in your laws and teachings. I pray that you would help us to follow you. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are struggling with a chronic lack of confidence today. Lord, I pray that they would begin to see themselves not through their own eyes, not through the eyes of the people telling them they're not good enough, they're not bold enough, they're not strong enough. I pray that they would see themselves through your eyes. And as you see us, you see what we are capable of through your power. God, I know that your power is made perfect in weakness, but weakness is an uncomfortable place for us to be. I pray that you would help us to embrace our weakness so we can experience your power. I pray that we would not let the things that give us confidence be what the masses are saying is right and true, and instead we will focus on what your word says. Father, I pray that you would help us to follow you in all that we do. It is for your glory that we sing, and it is for your glory that we live, it is for your glory that we serve, that we give, that we do everything. And I pray that as we sing this next song, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with your presence. No matter what's going on this week or no matter what's in store for the week ahead, I pray that your presence would be with us and we would have confidence in that. And God, that we would see how good you are and how powerful you are and how loving you are. God, I'm just so thankful for how much you have given us. Restore our confidence in you. Father, I pray for her our children's workers, our youth leaders. I pray for those that are investing in our, this next generation. I pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment as they are dealing with so many issues. As they go to school and are bombarded, as they go to college and are, and are bombarded, and often go into work and are bombarded by these things that are unhealthy. Father, help us to follow you. Help us to know you and to be confident in you so that the things of this world do not knock us off our feet. Forgive us 
when we have settled for confidence in ourselves, the way we look and the way we act and the way we talk and the money we make, forgive us. And I pray that this this room would be filled with people with godly confidence that would respond to your call to go out and change the world would experience your power within their lives. Father, help us to be like David and place our confidence in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.